G'day and welcome to Talking Finance. I'm Alan Kohler. This week, Robert Hillard, the Managing Partner of Consulting at Deloitte's, tells me how shockingly unprepared Australian executives are to deal with the technological change that's coming at them. Graham Richardson, former Minister in the Hawke and Keating Governments and columnist for The Australian, shares his thoughts on both sides of politics. Evan Lucas, market strategist and founder of the Lucas Review, runs me through the market news of the week. And Craig James, chief economist at Comsec, takes me through the week in economics. Joining me now is Robert Hillard, the managing partner of consulting at Deloitte. And they just put out a report uh, polling Australian executives about what they're calling the fourth industrial revolution. And are Australian executives ready? So let's ask Robert what he found. Well, Robert, um, I found your findings absolutely appalling. Um, and I mean, as, a, as an investor in Australian businesses, I'm in despair. 2% of Australian business leaders feel confident that they can fully harness the changes associated with Industry 4.0 compared with 14% globally. Um, I mean, and there are other findings which we can go into detail. Uh, 4% of respondents consider technology a key competitive differentiator compared with 20% globally. I mean, that's absolutely shocking. I think that um, it's the second figure which actually leads to the first one. The fact that such a low number of Australian companies see technology as being core to differentiating their products or services actually then leads us to very low confidence that we that we can adapt to uh, something that's radically uh, radically changed the economy in the future which has technology at the core and, no, and but, I, I, but another... I also but I also take from that that um, they don't think it's a big deal and they don't care because you know that the 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 considering the, the percentage that considers technology a key competitive differentiator indicates they don't really care about it it's taken a long time for the Australian economy or Australian business to uh, to to adapt to having technology as a core capability beyond beyond the back office. And, and in fact, today there was another survey um, out a couple of days ago which said that only six percent of Australian CEOs have a technology background. Now, in this survey, we saw that a large number of uh, CEOs felt very confident in their team's ability to be able to understand the technology, but um, but. But they themselves, individually, don't necessarily have that confidence. So they, what we're really seeing is that um, there's a lack of strategic understanding of the role that technology is going to play in transforming products and services in, in, in what's really quite a near term. But even that number that you mentioned of executives who say they have the people in place for the, with the right skills, which is 71%, is also less than the global number, I think, of 86%. That's right, um, but it's still it's, it's still a large number. What worries us is that um, uh, is that business is delegating this problem. Um, ultimately, what we're what we're seeing is that the the types of products and services that people are going to be wanting in the years to come are going to have a much stronger physical technology component. That is that this idea that digital is something that have, that you do in one part of your life with your smartphone. Um, with your PC, um, and then you you interact physically with your uh, with with the bricks and mortar services is disappearing. Everything is become is coming together, and that that becomes important in areas like transport. It becomes um, important in manufacturing. It becomes um, it actually becomes important. It becomes even more important uh, when we look in financial services, telecommunications, and the like. Uh, and 
we and even more concerning, uh, we don't actually know exactly what this is going to look like. We're, we're dealing quite short term, and yet with a lot of clouds, uh, cloudiness in uh, in exactly which sorts of services are going to be the winners. So companies can't take a strategy of being a fast follower because by the time someone has made the first move, it may actually be too late. I just think it's terrible. I mean, Australia's businesses are being left behind, according to this. And, um, you know, uh, the politicians and the business world, the business leaders have been saying for years, waffling on for years about how this is a smart country and we're investing in innovation and we're doing all we can. But it's rubbish. I think it's amazing. We are an innovative country. Um, it, it, you know, if you look at a lot of the types of inventions that, um, you yeah, know, that sit at the core of our technology future, a lot of them are coming out of Australia. We've got uh, great research that's been happening into nanomaterials. We've got great research in biotech. We've got we've had great research in digital technologies. So we know we we know we have the smarts. We actually have a great education system that's given us a workforce that is ca- that is more than capable. And we are seeing the um, the start of advanced manufacturing, uh, particularly in Western Australia and South Australia, that is needed to adapt. So those are the positives. On the negatives, um, our board governance is very heavily geared towards uh, protection of the status quo. Yeah, we were all of our um, all of the messages we give to directors is make sure you don't make a mistake in in ensuring the ongoing viability of the company that you're governing. That doesn't reward risk taking. And unfortunately, what we're really saying about Industry 4.0 is there is no low risk path in the majority of industries. Yeah, that's very interesting, actually. I mean, and it's true. We have such a risk-averse culture, particularly at the board level. I mean, um, but, uh, you know, you you seem to be suggesting that it's not their fault in some way that it's being imposed on them, that risk-averse culture is being imposed on them from outside. But actually, uh, it seems to me they've done it themselves, haven't they? Well, if it was just one company, if you were looking at one retailer um, or, uh, or one manufacturer, who was whose board was failing to take to make the step? Then you say yeah, you blame you blame the directors, you blame the CEO. But what, if you do a survey like this and you see it's systemic across the board, you've got to say there's something about the environment in which they're operating which is making this happen. Um, that means it's it this isn't a role solely for government, but it's also not a role solely for directors or solely for the um, Australian Institute of Company Directors, uh, for instance. It's actually uh, all of these groups have to come together. We fairly urgently need to have some sort of forum which does bring together those groups and says, well, what is it about the settings that we we need to change? Is there something about the way um, that we reward or punish directors? That has to change. Is there something about a regulatory regime that has to change? What's, what about the risk appetites of investors? Um, what about the type of reporting that we're giving to investors? Do we need to change something there so that some behaviours change? Because frankly, if we wait another five years, then we will have seen a number of global players come into the Australian market um, and our local business may not be able to respond in time. Very interesting. I mean, it just occurs to me that the the only kind of real survey or sort of forum thing we've got going at the moment is the Royal Commission into Financial Services, um, which is going to continue to beat uh, boards around the head and ears um, uh, and make them more risk averse, if if anything. (laughs) 
That's right. You're absolutely right. Again, if you were a director and you're looking at that, whether you're working financial services or on the edge of it, uh, think about the messaging that you're getting. The, 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 the entire environment that you're operating in is don't take risk. The other thing we know is that when everybody, whenever anybody hears about technology projects, what they think of are these big transformative technology projects and how many of them end up in the media going wrong. Um, and then the executives who are involved effectively uh, you know, are punished, uh, you know, and, and, and take the blame for a, uh, you know, for a major, fa- you know, for a major systems failure. Uh, but the reality is, is it's only those companies that take the risks and put in new systems and, um, and develop base capabilities so that they have platforms to operate on that are able to respond. Um, we know that, uh, you know, when a retailer doesn't have a great digital foundation, it makes it really, really hard for them to respond when somebody comes in from outside who does. We know that uh, from a logistics perspective that uh, everybody's expecting their goods to be moved faster, for it to be cheaper for it to move, and to be able to track it at every, at every step of the way. But that requires absolutely fantastic technology. Joining me now is Graham Richardson, former Labor Minister and now columnist for News Corp, to tell us about what's going on in politics and, in particular, what's going on in the New South Wales coalition and the stash that's going on there. Graham, I, I, um, I was interested in your piece in The Australian the other day where you said that uh, Australia's democracy is probably the best and most stable in the world, and I'm not sure a lot of people would agree with you. Well, I, I, they're going to have, they're gonna have a, a, a bit of a difficulty saying it's not the most stable. Um, it's a pretty stable government here, uh, whereas if you look at Italy, they've had a government every nine months since the Second World War. So I think we're a bit different to some places. And um, because we don't have, because we do have some sort of discipline in our parliament, um, you, you know, you, you don't have the government being uh, voted down very often. I mean, it just doesn't happen here. And so I think um, unless the Governor General steps in, as in 75, we do have a very stable democracy. It might, it mightn't sometimes uh, produce the results that you and I or anybody listening wants, but that doesn't mean it isn't it isn't stable. I suppose the um, uh, the image of instability comes about because the parties tend to change or have been changing leaders reasonably often, um, but and certainly well, more, more often than, more often than we change parties, I guess. Yeah, I think um, that that seems to have stopped because the Liberals have had every reason to change and haven't, and now look to me like they don't have the stomach for it. So perhaps that era's over. In the Labor Party, it's very difficult to change. Now the Kevin Rudd leader for life uh, rules make it very difficult for anyone to challenge the Labor leader. So do you think that um, Turnbull will will fight the next election as leader of the... Uh, it looks that way. I, I, just, I, I just don't believe they have the stomach for, uh, for knocking him off, um, nor do they have a sort of outstanding candidate um, to run. I mean, I think the most likely winner would be Julie Bishop, um, but they don't regard her as, you know, a standout, as someone who would sweep the, the country and win an election. For much of 2017, it looked like the conservative side of politics was going to be or was kind of beginning to be in civil war uh, of some sort. Do you think that that's dying down now? No, certainly not in New South Wales. They're set for a massive fight in the next few weeks um, as the, um, the people in charge of the party, the so-called left, I say so-called left because they're not my version of left, but um, the so-called left are ignoring the uh, resolution that 
was passed uh, at their conference last year. Um, which re- uh, which resolution to, is that? which resolution is that? This is a resolution that's going to hand some power back to the rank and file. Um, and so what they're doing is they're trying to do a deal with the right, um, which I note uh, new Senator Jim Mole and, and Tony Abbott are both um, getting stuck into. But this deal would increase the rights representation, um, and that <clears throat> that apparently will settle some of the people in the right down. But it, uh, with Mullen and Abbott uh, just jumping up and having a go, I suspect that um, that deal will be scrapped and there'll be an almighty, almighty fight on the floor. Uh, I don't, and, and you know, with with the party expelling or suspending, effectively expelling someone like Ross Cameron, um, it just means that they, they don't tolerate divergent views. So will that New South Wales stoush have uh, federal implications? Oh, it has to have. Um, inevitably, it must have, because um, it'll weaken the party in New South Wales. Now, Labor surprisingly won a majority of seats in New South Wales at the last federal election, and that's going to go up at the next one. Uh, and the, the Liberals are going to find it very hard to, uh, to to campaign and very hard to produce troops on the ground because the troops are pretty discontented. I think the problem is that the, the, the Liberal membership in New South Wales is is very much right-wing, yet the left control the party apparatus. And that's obviously going to be a, a source of complaint. And so uh, I suppose um, that just further um, reinforces the idea that the Liberal Party, the Coalition, will get uh, tossed out at the next election federally? Well, it still looks like that. I mean, I, I don't write them off completely, but if I think that the, the general rule of politics would be if you have been for, you know, the large part of 18 months way behind, um, it's very hard to see them winning because people have made their minds up. And once Australians make their minds up, they don't really change them. That's what killed Gillard. They'd made their minds up. And so no one was, was going to vote for everyone knew it. And so Labor got rid of her. Um, I don't think, though, that the Liberals can do that um, because they think Turnbull's their best chance of a win. And they may be right. Even though, even if he, um, even if he goes thirty negative news polls, well, well, he's going to look ridiculous, Alan. You, you know, we both know that. Um, I didn't say he wouldn't look ridiculous, and I didn't say he is the best candidate. I said they think it, and um, uh, I think Julie Bishop would be would would certainly do better. But um, obviously, not enough of them do, so he'll stay. And what do you think about the Labor Party? What sort of government will they make? Well, I'm I'm sitting here writing a column for tomorrow. And uh, I'm saying that um, Labor's really been caught short on this whole TPP. Um, and so that, you know, a decision as big as this, they obviously didn't expect it's come out of the blue for Labor. Uh, you've had um, short and bagging it for the last 12 months and calling, basically calling the Prime Minister a fool for chasing it. Uh, but it's now been delivered, albeit minus the USA and Canada. But still, it's still a pretty significant um uh, I think trade deal. So I think uh, Labor have really got a problem with that, and they're going to have a problem with following the unions on everything. Now they've always done it, but it's getting harder and harder to do because while I don't blame the unions for jumping up and down about the TPP, because it probably will cost jobs, and their job is to protect their their members' jobs. Obviously, uh, it's not. It's just bad economics. Um, which, which you would, I mean, I'm not going to lecture you about economics, obviously, but um, it seems to me that it's pretty obvious that it's in Australia's benefit. So 
you can't oppose things that will benefit the country and, and make it wealthier. And apart from anything else, I guess uh, hardly anyone's a member of a union these days. Well, when I started, um, you know, I hate revealing how ancient I am, but I began life as a Labor uh, official in December 71. At that time, in New South Wales, there were 500 branches and over 50,000 members of the party, and 55% of people were in trade unions. Uh, so there's been a massive transformation during my adult life. Joining me now is market strategist and the founder of the Lucas Review, Evan Lucas. Well, Evan, um, the dollar, the US dollar fell last night. Um, what's going on? Yeah, it's, it's been falling quite dramatically for probably about 14 months. So it's lost 13.5% since it's high in December 2016 to, to where we are now. But last night's decline was was more dramatic than what you'd expect and, and it came from a very unlikely source. So we know that President Trump certainly wants to, to talk about you know, America first and his policy around that, which means increasing trade. And he wants a lower dollar. And for the first time, realistically, in the modern world, we actually saw the U.S. Treasury Department publicly saying at the Davos Convention that they actually are happy that the U.S. dollar is, is lower and, and heading lower still as it increases their exports in terms of value and, and makes U.S. exports look and appear cheaper. So it's not something you normally see. Not only that, if you actually look at, if you go back to sort of general theory about markets, when you've got good growth and you've got economic, you know, output looking as rosy as it does in the U.S. and a central bank that is actually technically raising rates, under theory, you should be probably looking at seeing that currency appreciate to see it down as much as it has been is quite interesting. It's not only a US dollar story, it is also the fact that Europe and also Japan, which are the two major components of the dollar basket, are really moving up quite strongly. But it is quite interesting that the Treasury Department has got in, is actually involved with the currency. It's a good short-term thing for the US, there's no doubt that's the case. But it is quite interesting that politics is actually blurring into markets. So why do you think the dollar, the US dollar has declined 13.5% um, in 14 months? There are several reasons. So part of it, as I said, look, you've got to look at it from the other side of the equation. There's always two sides to a, to a currency pair coin, if you want to sort of make that pun. So the euro has had an incredible run. So the European Union is expected to finally this year sort of catch up to the rest of the world and break out of its growth malaise you're talking about the possibility that the ECB might also start moving on their monetary policy. So that's that's been one part of it. And the euro's moved up to as high as 123. So that's $1.23 US, um, levels that we haven't seen in about four years. So that's, that's part of it. It's the same with the other side of the world in Japan, the dollar yen. So that's the US dollar versus the Japanese yen has also been falling, which means the yen's been appreciating. And again, on the idea that the Japanese are just showing signs of better better numbers. So that's part of it. It's also around the US bond market, and there's no doubt that there is possible risks building over there. We know that they're raising rates, but also there is you know, signs of, of funding. There's also questions about their, their tax policy and, and whether or not that actually impacts their ability to, to service their debt, et cetera, et cetera. So there is that risk. There's also the risk in the risk side of the market, the equity side, that they think maybe it's got too fast, too, too, you know, too far, too fast. And that also is just being reflected in, in, in the US bond market. And therefore, you know, this whole issue around possible credit funding and whether or not you get a bit of a, a headache around it. There's also some that argue that maybe bond traders are trying to force the hand of the Fed 
not to raise rates considering that interest rates on the bonds are already quite high. So all that filters into why the US dollar is, is actually slightly lower, is, is all around it. But if you look at it just purely through the fundamentals and look purely through the macro prism of growth that is happening in the US, the wealth that's happening in the US, realistically, it probably should be higher. So what about the stock market? What's going on with the uh, US stock market at the moment? Yeah, yeah and that's, that's the other interesting sort of scenario is that they keep printing record highs. Um, and even with this volatility that we're currently going through around the possibility of, of what's going on with the government shutdown last week and it's been pushed out to February 8th and you know, now that we've seen Donald Trump actually saying that you'll, you'll go in front of special counsel, all these kind of political events normally and have in the past been an impact. But they are very, very shallow and there is just no bearish sentiment in risk at the moment. Ray Dalio, uh, the very famous fund manager in Davos, last night basically said if you're sitting on cash, you should probably be crying into your cereal. And he's right. So if you have a look at what's going on, the U.S., S&P particularly is the best market to look at because it's a market cap market rather than the Dow, which is a price market market. If I fix explain that well. Um, if you look at what's going on there, if you have a look at since basically 2013 to now, it's been pretty much at a premium to EPS, so earnings per share uh, forecast, and also the forward blended PE ratio, price earnings ratio. But what we've been seeing is in the past, if the premium and the price went away, it would come back to the earnings. What's been happening since 2013 in the US is that the earnings are actually legging up on the price. So analysts are actually underestimating firms. All of a sudden, the market has been proven right that they've been pricing correctly. Earnings jump up. The PE ratio, therefore, goes down because earnings are actually the ones moving rather than the price. And actually showing that the movement up has been justified. Underlying uh, company earnings in the US are justifying the current premium prices and those record levels that we're seeing in markets with, with, with actuals. And this is the question now is that, yes, there are people that are getting out there that are getting a little bit pessimistic slash slightly scared that this has gone too hard too fast. But if you actually generally look at the fundamentals of the US market, they are being backed by the underlying earnings of the firms that make it up. And that's the most interesting thing right now. If you look at what's going on with regards to what I'm looking at, which is revenue uh, estimates versus actuals, that's beating uh, uh, the street by about 75%. Normally, it beats it by about 70 If you look at the EPS numbers, they normally beat the street by 62 It's currently beating it by 65% of the time. So there is real strength in there for actual underlying fundamental reasons. I'm joined now by Craig James, the Chief Economist at Comsec. Well, well Craig, uh, not much out this week, a few things, but um, it starts with your own business sales index, which you compile from credit card transactions and all that stuff within the bank. So um, uh, what did you learn? It looks to me as if it wasn't that great, but it wasn't that bad either. Yeah, I think that's probably you know, a sort of reasonable uh, assessment. Um, we, we look at it in trend terms because we do do know there's a fair bit of volatility in seasonally adjusted terms. In trend terms, we've had growth in the month of December of 0.4%. Now, if we look over the last decade, the average growth pace has been 0.3%. So I think you're right. You know, sort of wasn't you know, sort of a tremendous result. It wasn't bad either. One of the the major things that has come up with, out from it, you know, so and we've seen this in terms of the Bureau of Statistics retail trade release. 
is that um, demand for things like physical goods, goods, the typical you know sort of retail uh, trade, things like department stores, clothing, you know, and the like, we um, have seen a degree of weakness, you know, sort of happening there. So we're not seeing you know, a lot of growth in the traditional retail and clothing stores. In fact, in trend terms, it was down by 0.4%, and that was the weakest result in the order of six and a half years. But we are continuing to see uh, increased demand for experiences, if you like to call them, things like amusement and entertainment that was amongst the, the gainers. That's things like going out to, to the, the pictures, the, the movies, uh, clubs, even lottery tickets you know, are in there as well. The other area of strength in terms of um, uh, spending in the month of December was in terms of cars. Um, and we do know it was a record year for uh, car sales, and that was really backed up by the, the result for the business sales index. Yeah, that's very interesting, isn't it? I mean, we've seen a there's a kind of a long-term trend from goods to services, and um, it seems to be continuing. Well, I, I think that is the case, and I think you know, so one of the things is the price effect. Um, if you're going out there and buying so, some new clothes or new shoes, a lot of people you know so realise that they're not paying a whole lot more than what they were paying you know, in the past. In fact, we we would um, um, advocate that. Um, food affordability, clothing affordability, the affordability of cars and whatnot um, is probably the best that it's ever been. So we do have low levels of prices that can affect the overall you know, spending results as well. So we are spending less in terms of um, traditional retail items, you know, so like clothing and, and shoes. And as a result, people have got a few extra dollars going you know, and they, they basically want to go out there and enjoy themselves, you know, so going out to the movies or the clubs or the like. The other thing that came out this week was the IMF's forecasts for uh, this year's growth, which they've revised upwards a bit. Does the IMF ever get it right? Uh, does it get it right? Well, I, I think it probably moves in the right direction. You know, sort of. Um, uh, if anything, it's probably you know, sort of more accused of being you know, sort of um, uh, too much glass half full rather than half empty. So it tends to be you know, sort of um, um, fairly positive, you know, sort of most of the, the time. Um, I, I suppose um, they compile the results from um, estimates for uh, economies right the way across the, the globe. They're trying to get the best information they can from, from central banks and, and private forecasters. We wouldn't have too much disagreement with, with the forecast. You know, we're getting up towards uh, 4% growth for, for the, the global economy. And we do know in terms of the, the partial information that we've got out from the, the United States and Europe and China and, and the like, that those economies are improving. Uh, so if anything you, you like, you know, sort of self-reinforcing, we have got a good forecast from the International Monetary Fund on, on global growth, and it is backed up by the data which we're, we're currently seeing. It was interesting, you had, a, you had a table in your release on the IMF forecast of the drivers, the contributions to growth, uh, and um, China right at the top, 1.03 of that 3.9% forecast and the United States 0.65, uh, Germany 0.1. I mean, it's amazing the, um, amazing the turnaround that's occurred, isn't it? Oh, it is. It is. And, you know, sort of, um, uh, I think what it highlights is the fact, too, that um, while we still regard China as the, the second biggest economy in the world, and there's debates about whether it's the, the second or the biggest, you know, sort of economy, but most people are still saying, well, the United States is the, the, the biggest economy for, from China. Uh, Chinese economy growing by, you know, sort of, you know, almost 7%, a little bit below, you know, sort of 7%. Um, but, um, you know, 7% growth for the second largest economy on the planet, uh, China, you know, so around about 3% for the largest economy, the United States. 
Um, and um, when you multiply the you know, so the figures through, you know, so the contribution to the global economy from China is quite significant. Something like one percentage point out of that almost four percentage points growth in the global economy comes from China. So um, yeah, it's important for us here in Australia, it's our major trading partner, you know, sort of uh, China. But it's more important, yes, you know, in terms of the global economy. A strong Chinese economy is important for for driving global economic growth. Uh, and the only other thing out this week of any significance, I guess, was the productivity numbers. Um, uh, I, I, to be honest, I found the whole thing a bit confusing. Uh, not only you know the the reason for low productivity growth, but also what the hell is going on, really? I mean, it is productivity, labour productivity growth in particular is quite weak, isn't it? It is. What we're seeing is productivity growth is the lowest in in five years. So labour productivity grew 1.1% on an hour's work basis, according to the Bureau of Statistics in um, the last financial year, 2016-17. So lowest annual growth that we're seeing in the order of five years. Now, in part... Part of the, the reason for, for that is the fact that job growth in recent years has actually been pretty good. So if you've got more people, you know, sort of starting, you know, sort of at a business, clearly, you know, so they, they need to get up to speed. Um, and if you've got very, very strong job growth, um, it takes longer for, for all those new workers to, to be able to get up to speed. So what we tend to see is productivity goes in fits and starts, goes strong for a period of time when, you know, sort of um, employment growth is relatively stable, and then, you know, sort of softens for a time when you know, some employers are putting more, more and more staff on. But um, I think you're right, too. A lot of people are scratching their heads and saying, we've got all this great technology, we've got all these apps, we've got all this you know, some great software. We, we do know that we're able to do things a whole lot easier in the past, but is it actually getting picked up in terms of the productivity numbers? And to some extent... Perhaps what we're doing is underestimating the degree of productivity that we're coming is coming through. But it is a big question mark for for the the Reserve Bank in terms of the way that they look at the the economy. And of course, we do know productivity is very very important in terms of wage setting. If you've got prices rising by two percent and productivity around about one percent, that means wages should really only growing by the sum of those around about three percent. And um, um, that suggests that we may see a little bit more upside in terms of of um, wage growth here in Australia before we start to, you know, to get you know, sort of problems in, in terms of inflation. And happy birthday, Etta James, who would have turned 80 today. And here's her big one, the mainstay of every second wedding. At last. That's it for Talking Finance. You can share your thoughts, and I wish you would, by emailing hello at theconstantinvestor.com and talk to Phoebe. I'm Alan Kohler. Have a constant week.